32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. My name is Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Welcome to our general election spash part two. In the run up to Ireland voting on February 8th, we're bringing you issue focused coverage with emerging political voices and opinions of voters and experts on the things that matter to you. This episode, crime and punishment. As drug-related crime and violence dominated the early part of the general election campaign, who are the voices offering the kind of insight that makes sense? In this episode, we are talking drug policy with Marcus Keane of Anna Liffey and Dublin Central Social Democrat candidate Gary Gannon. But first, campaign news. Campaign news. Uh, it has been busy. The biggest news, I suppose, this week are the two polls. One in the Sunday Times kind of behaviour and attitudes poll that put Fianna Fáil, um, a terrifying 12. It sounded very bananas, the results of that. When yeah, I like it was 12. They were like a 12 point lead over Fine Gael. I suppose um, slightly more pertinent is the Irish Times poll, uh, which is equally worrying for um, Fine Gael because... Uh, it it basically shows that um, Fianna Fáil have a lead over Fine Gael, uh, 25% um, support uh, compared to Fine Gael's 23%. But the real story is uh, Sinn Féin at 21%, um, two percentage points of support behind Fine Gael. Now, it's also important, I was, I was looking at the front of the Irish Daily Mail on Monday and it was Ugh. like, loads of ministers are going to lose their seats and la la la. Like, you know, we need to kind of Calm down. Calm down a little bit and have some perspective. It is a long campaign. Um, you know, the idea that there will be like a massive ministerial meltdown of uh, people losing seats across the country, you know, that may not come to pass. Um, obviously, Apparently the independents are going to be hit hard. Yeah, and I think, you know... Which is an interesting development. And I think the Greens, um, even though, interestingly, their, their support is kind of levelled a little bit uh, in this poll at 8%, Labour down a point, uh, Indies 18%. Um, you know, these are these are kind of uh, temperatures taken at, at, at various points, and there will be more polls, of course, uh, during uh, the campaign. Suffice to say that uh, the black and tan debacle uh, really damaged Fine Gael, I think, yeah. and the main people to make hay from that were Sinn Féin. Um, in debate land on. Uh, traditional media <laughs> television television I don't know if you guys have heard of it uh, this week uh, Leo and Miho Martin will be juking it out uh, with Pat Kenny and then there's also the hoo-ha about uh, Sinn Féin saying that they're being excluded from the leaders debate on RTE but I feel like this is absolutely riling me up so much it's like how can you propose a leaders debate between just two parties and they're saying it's based on previous election results previous blah 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 RTE in their statement but obviously that's going to continue if you just keep platforming the two parties that have previously won if there's no space for other people to get in it's like it is excluding a whole uh, 21% of the population who would vote for Sinn Féin. Why is, why is less than 50% of the population being represented with the leaders' debates? I suppose because it is a legacy issue, right? This is how um, Irish politics has been framed. and Which is, which what, is why it's an issue. Which is why it's, it's an issue. There is also going to be a seven-way leaders' debate. I think it's seven-way uh, on RTE as well. But of course, the other debate between Micheál Martin and Leah Varadkar, Sinn Féin, uh, Sinn Féin are taking legal advice. Um, Pierre Stardy was kind of going after that, writing to RTE saying, you know, we're being excluded. Um, and, 
you know, RTE are, are basically their statement is a little bit muddy. In other campaign news, uh, Paddy Holland, the in in Sinn Fein, um, was uh, got himself in a lot of bother to the to the uh, point of being su- suspended from from the party. Uh, on the back of comments he made, not just about um, Leo Varadkar, but also about women. Uh, I think again, it's a lesson. Uh, for Mary Lou Macdonald and for Sinn Féin that if somebody is saying something that first, in the first instance mm. that off the bat is very dodgy uh, which uh, relates to Paddy's uh, comments about Leo Varadkar and his heritage and so on chances are it speaks to the broader character of the person we saw this happen with how uh, Verona Murphy was given um, second and third chances by Fine Gael and how it came back to bite them same thing happens here But it's also interesting that it was also in such plain sight like it was on his podcast that had been out for a while and Ellen Coyne in Joe.ie just listened to it like it's the fact that she just listened Props to Ellen Coyne for that one Um, There was policy bonanza uh, going on in this part of the Campaign: Sinn Féin vowing to build 100,000 social homes with their bare hands. No, not with their bare <laughs> hands. Um, there's more kind of stuff Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil throwing out about the help to buy scheme, first time buyers, la la la. Uh, the Sock Dems have launched their housing plan as well. Propo- Just this morning. Yeah, what are the proposals in that? They have proposed a nationwide rent freeze, which would be stunning. Anti-land hoarding measures, um, which is obviously something that the other parties who usually have three or four properties themselves as <laughs> landlords, like I think it was Kate O'Connell was shown to have four investment properties around the country. Oh, wow. Um, a change remit of LDA to deliver 100,000 homes over the next five years. So 100,000 seems to be the Magic bing, number. bing, bing, bing number. Um, and this is what I think is very interesting. They want to hold a referendum to put the right to home in a, the constitution. Mm. Um, there, I, I can't see that ever happen. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I could. Like, it sounds gorgeous and it should happen, but like, well, de- like with a... With the neoliberals in, you just can't see that becoming a constitutional thing. And how would you? I'd be really interested to see the details on that. Is mm. what I'm saying. Well, they may not be in uh, for for when, for much longer. To be honest, um, it is looking very shaky for Finnegal at the moment. And I suppose the main worry for them is that there haven't been signs that their campaign will get better. Um, that's not me being a, a mm. bitch about it. I mean, I just think that when you start off. Um, in in the poor way that they did when you can't actually respond adequately to the events that unfold throughout the campaign and when you are kind of always on the defensive. I mean, this is always the issue with um, parties that are in government trying to uh, get into government again. They have to defend their record. And and, uh, whereas other parties who haven't been in government get to just make proposals. And um, the main issues are the ones that they really faltered on of like homelessness and housing um, and how they can come back from that. And what have Labour been doing this week? Uh, Labour are going after gender equality. Uh, not going after, they're very big on it. They launched their uh, gender equality campaign with Rebecca Moynihan and Ivana Bacic, who is a strident campaigner for women's rights. Um, and what they're going after is a state childcare pilot where state uh, staff would look after the children so that and it's a, an investment I think of six million to see how childcare can be rolled out because it seems to be childcare and pensions that are coming up on the doors a lot mm-hmm. this campaign and um, there is going to be a, uh, a childcare uh, childcare workers 
and um, teachers strike as well during this campaign so those those events will bring uh, those issues into focus and Fine Gael, they don't they're kind of finding it hard to get a leg to stand on on those things and on the pension thing um, which I think is really interesting what's the because, pension thing now? Uh, most companies you are forcing people to retire at 65 but you don't get a date uh, pension till 67 right so you have to go so on the dole is there's it? two years where mm. you're left in limbo and there's uh, big conversations about how they can't afford to bring the state pension down to 65 and it's looking that it will go to 68 um, as well and ICTU have come out and said that they've warned the government about that this would be a big issue in the past and they were it fell on deaf ears and now we're in a position where it's really becoming a hot topic on the campaign trail. Right, so that's the campaign news for this week and now let's get to the juice. This episode is all about crime and punishment. We are now joined by Marcus Keane, who's Head of Policy with Anna Liffey. The current campaign running by Anna Liffey is Safer From Harm, a policy that advocates for a health-based approach to drug use. Um, now, as we've been inundated with hard crime talk from two of the main parties um, up for election, um, and there was a tweet actually from TV's Carl Kinsley who said, Fine Gael have tweeted about crime three times today. The last time they tweeted the word crime before today was January 17th, 2019, which was a full year ago. So there's been a recent spate of violence, um, but there doesn't seem to be any acknowledgement of the wider causation of actual policies implemented by the parties in relation to funding being cut and drug policy. So we know what bad drug policy looks like, because we have it, um, and it's gotten us to this this point. But we want to know now what does good drugs policy look like? So we will throw that to Marcus. Hello, Marcus. Hello, and thanks for having me, guys. Uh, So I suppose the first thing to say is in relation to a bad drug policy, I actually think the Irish drug policy is okay in terms of what its focus is, which is uh, health-focused in relation to uh, individual-level drug use. Um, But the broader construct of how we think about drug policy at a global level and something that's been driven uh, over the last uh, uh, 60 years um, is is where the problem is. Um, so that is something that has largely been focused on trying to eradicate drug use in the context of, uh, of non-medical and non-research use. Uh, and that's what's got us to this point, because that has led the states down the, uh, down the path of criminalising individual level drug users, which was never a, a good idea. Uh, it's not effective in terms of uh, reducing harms associated with drug use. But nonetheless, it is where we are at the moment. Um, And when we talk, I suppose there's been so much talk about good drug policy and everyone's hailing Portugal's tactic. And there's even been like op-ed titles such as Portugal's radical drug policy is working and why hasn't the world copied it? What's your take on that? Uh, So I think, I mean, Portugal is uh, often held up as the poster child of how to... Uh, deal with individual level drug use. What is their What is their policy? So their approach is: if you get stopped with uh, uh, with drugs, uh, you go in front of what's called a commission of dissuasion. They have a, a variety of powers that they can use, but really, what they're looking to do is identify whether or not uh, you have a, a problem with your drug use. It's causing an impact in your life, and you could be offered other health responses, uh, or if you're just a a, a recreational uh, user that does. Doesn't require uh, that doesn't require uh, further inputs. Um, so really, that's what they look to do. Um, but the, the the context in which this happens is that it's an administrative offence rather than a criminal offence. Mm. 
Um, and I mean, that's what we have been uh, uh, promoting here over the last couple of years in terms of analyphy. And there was a working group set up underneath the National Drug Policy to look at implementing a similar approach uh, in Ireland. And the government uh, recommended uh, a new policy approach uh, back in uh, August. Uh, and now there is a working group that's been set up to look at how that becomes operationalised. Um, and I think that policy is a step in the right direction, but obviously the proof of the pudding is in the eating and uh, we're not sure that it goes uh, far enough in terms of uh, really vindicating a health-led approach. Let's talk about that that policy. So th- this year, later this year, those kind of new laws are going to come into play where, as far as I understand it, the first incident of possession will see the person in question uh, referred to a HSE worker um, and then with the guard they are entitled to issue a caution in the, in the second instance and then escalate it after that. But I think my issue with that is if drug possession is initially treated as a health issue, but then repeated infractions become a criminal issue, will that not impact addicts the most? I mean, absolutely. And this would be my primary concern uh, with it as well, is that if drug use is a, is a health issue the first time, it's a health issue the hundredth time. Um, and if you start to go down this route of saying, well, look, we're going to treat it as a health issue uh, initially, then that's what you have to do at every step of the way. And we know that there is no uh, odds at all in criminalising people. And another concern I would have underneath this policy is exactly what you're saying, Una, which is that the people who are likely to be caught three times. The people who are likely to come to the attention uh, of the guards more than once for being in possession of drugs for personal use are people who are already struggling with issues in their life. They are being caught because they are visible. They are uh, on the streets, they are engaged in public drug use um, so there's all of that type of stuff that goes with it. So uh, I don't think the, the, the cohort of people that would end up being being criminalised will be that group that's already marginalised. Because mm, if you get caught with like a bag of yolks down electric picnic or something and you end up in Port Leash in, in the court with all, everyone else and you're you know a middle class person who was like watching Christine and the Queens or whatever, you're going to go, oh, I'm not going to do that. Not going to do that again. I'm not going to be, you know, that's a, it's a big deal. I'm not going to get caught. Yeah, it's a big deal for somebody who doesn't interact with the criminal justice system to end up in court on a drugs offence. So one imagines, like you're saying, that it is actually going to be people who don't have the capacity to remove themselves from that context that will actually end up being facing this punitive kind of approach. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even to take that, you know, example of the person at the festival, it is, there's a huge amount of drug use and drug possession that goes on in Ireland and right across Europe and right across the world. You know, it's not something that we should uh, shy away from or close our eyes to. It happens an awful lot. You know, the best stats that we have in Ireland is that 30% of the population have uh, used uh, uh, an, an illegal drug uh, I don't like the term but an illegal drug at some point during their lives so this is you know an issue that is uh, that is very very widespread um, and, and it almost feels higher yeah 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 I know you can't really argue with stats but it does yeah I mean so I mean there's always yeah. the question around are people answering those type of things honestly because yeah. there's such a stigma associated with drug use but there's you know they're, they're, they do the research to, to account for those type of things um, but, you know, the, that person who is caught at electric picnic with a bag of yolks, like they... Disclaimer are, to electric picnic, by the way. Yeah, any festival. <laughs> any festival. Could, be, could be longitude, could even be kaleidoscope. <laughs> who knows? But, a, you know, a, a 
festival goer who is you know caught with drugs right what we can say is that you know the the, the current system of criminalization is not deterring people from using drugs mm. uh, at festivals um it uh, you know the, the drug use is is widespread so it's not serving the purpose for which it was intended. The reason we criminalise something is to deter people from doing it, and that isn't the case. Um, that's not, you know, that that's not what, what what's what's happening. We're hearing a lot um, about the escalation in cocaine use uh, across the country. That it is uh, reaching or maybe even surpassing, you know, Celtic Tiger levels, um, and that the. The demographics of cocaine use have changed. I think there was a, 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 a was it a doctor down in Cork talking about actually the average cocaine user now is like a nurse or a farmer or whatever. It's not you know someone in an ad agency or <laughs> and it's co- also people don't have assets to that like a house that they own themselves, so they ha- are spending time and their money decorating or living in it. They're doing coke. Fair enough. That, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, but I think um, like are you what? Are you seeing that uh, escalation on the ground? Like, are you seeing that in your kind of in the service provision side of things? So in service provision, I mean, we work day to day with people who are actively using drugs. And a lot of those people would have other, you know, serious comorbid issues in their lives, like homelessness and stuff like that. So they wouldn't be your, your stereotypical, I suppose, powder cocaine user. I mean, over the last couple of years, services generally in Dublin have seen uh, an increase in people uh, attending with crack cocaine use. Um, so you know, that's where we see the increase in cocaine. But the increase in cocaine use is not something that's just happening in Ireland. It is, you know, right across uh, Europe. Uh, I think cocaine accounts for something like 30% of the uh, of the drug market now across uh, Europe, of the retail drug market. So it's something that certainly uh, is a very large, uh, a very large issue. Yeah. Why is that increasing? Like, is it to do with the um, how drug cartels themselves are increasing in their scope? Like, I was reading that report from some European agency that was out recently saying that the Kinahan cartel, for example, is now one of the biggest drug cartels in Europe, if not the world. I think it's something like 90 to 95% of the drugs that enter this country are coming from, um, allegedly coming from the, the Kinahan cartel. So what is this increase about? Is it that there's more in the market or is it about changing like behaviour in, in people's consumption in general? Because you also see these reports about, you know, young millennials are drinking less. And my reaction to that is like, well, maybe they're taking more drugs instead of alcohol. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, a different I think, type of drug. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the like I, I don't know the specific answer in relation to cocaine. I don't know the supply routes uh, into Ireland well. But what I can say in relation to the market in general is that it is shifting and it is changing. And you know, like all markets, it's been impacted by technology. We now have you know a situation where anyone with a computer can order drugs on the internet. Uh, you can do it on the surface web. You can do it on the dark web. Uh, so. There is no longer a need to have physical contact, I suppose, with a. Uh, you don't have to go in a shady lane. Yeah, yeah, with, with the criminal market in order to, uh, in order to to, to purchase illicit substances, um, and then that takes place. That increased accessibility takes place against a backdrop where lots of people are shopping online every day, and there's lots of stuff coming through the postal service. So it's very difficult to uh, to track. And then in terms of uh, enforcement, uh, you then have the problem of dealing with things maybe that are outside the Irish jurisdiction that simply we have no uh, control over um, that are entities that are are sending drugs in. Mm. 
There's been a lot of chatter over Twitter, especially, but um, people are saying that the reaction to drug crime is that middle class so-called recreational drug users fuel the gangs and the illegal industry by buying drugs at the weekend. So do you think that perspective makes sense? And do you think calling on people not simply not to buy drugs makes a difference? Look, I mean, everything, (coughs) anybody who is engaged in uh, illicit drug use, the fact that that drug use is part of an illicit market, of course, it goes, the funds for that go into the illicit market um, and people know that. But the, the, in terms of appealing to people's, you know, better judgment to say, look, don't use drugs because you're, uh, you're, you're, you're fueling uh, uh, drug gangs. I don't think that's going to be a particularly effective intervention. I mean, everything we know about behaviour change and what people respond to is that these simple, you know, messages that we've been trying, you know, for years of just having like an ad campaign to say, oh, well, just say no. And, you know, that, that like they don't they don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's not the type of thing that's going to result in, in change. We've, we've been trying that type of stuff for years. Uh, and w- what we see is that over the years, demand has increased, supply has increased, uh, uh, price people has gone down, purity has gone coke. up. People are going to keep doing it. So what, if people are going to keep doing coke, um, he, what is the answer? Like, if we de- don't want to fund illegal gangs, is it a case of taking it and making it legal? And like, even when I was looking at Twitter, like everyone's going, now, obviously marijuana is a different story, but nobody wants to legalise coke, but yet you have 30% of people who are doing coke. So where's the disconnect in it? Yeah, so I think, I mean, that's a complicated question because we are operating in a, you know, in a global environment where drug use uh, and drugs have been very, very tightly controlled uh, for years and years and years. Um, so we don't really have, you know, any evidence to look at to say, well, this is what happens yeah. if you uh, if, if you mess with that. Um, and the other thing I would say is that it is not necessary, like it's, 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 it's not a question of, uh, you know, legalising or prohibiting something. So drugs aren't illegal. There's no drug in Ireland that's illegal. What we have is a system of control uh, to control drugs and we use certain tools uh, in that system of control. And the question is, is the system of control we have fit for purpose in the in the modern world? So are all the levers set at the right uh, switches? And then when you have that, you can drill down into it and say, well, look, uh, you know, we we maybe should be doing this and shouldn't be doing that, uh, and it's within that context that I view what we were talking about earlier on decriminalisation. So one of the tools that we have is that if you are, as an individual personal uh, uh, drug user, in uh, in possession of drugs for personal use, currently that's a that, that that's a criminal offence. So. That's one thing that we could, you know, get rid of straight away um, that is causing more harm than the good it's supposed to be doing. But that's not going to, I suppose, impact on the fact that that you're still funding criminal gangs and feuds, etc. Is there a solution to that? Don't do drugs. Um, oh, well, look, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure there is. I mm. think uh, for, uh, and, I, and I think for years and years, we've, we've looked at this in the context of looking for a solution, mm. right? That we see drug use and historically drug use has been seen as something that is to be eradicated, right? That that has been the public policy approach. What we want to do is we want to eradicate all uh, non-medical and uh, non-research drug use. 
um, and our policies have been have been geared towards that. When in reality, it's not a problem to be solved. It is an mm-hmm. issue in society that is very widespread that we have to manage, um, and we have to be realistic about that. And we have to balance, you know, competing things like on the one hand that criminalising people particularly uh, huge swathes of the population is not a great idea and brings with it all these other uh, you know negative impacts on people's lives and at the same time we can't be saying you know uh, drugs are without harm because they're not they're not drugs yeah. can cause great harm in people's lives so it's balancing those things in a modern society that is switched on all the time that is driven by uh, you know internet purchasing um, and uh, in which drugs are accessible and cheap and are likely to continue to be so Marcus Keane had a policy with Anna Liffey thank you so much for joining us that was very enlightening thanks guys In the first official week of the general election campaign, a series of violent events snapped one social issue into focus. And it's one politicians don't talk about too much, even though it is literally one of life and death. In one week, there was the horrific murder of 17-year-old Kimo Reedy Woods, whose body was dismembered and disposed of in multiple locations. Extraordinarily uh, grim. Um, That uh, kind of brought this escalating gang uh, feud in Drada to the fore. Two men were shot in swords. Also, a gunman also opened fire in a taxi in Drada in which a rival was apparently travelling. And unrelated to all of this, but still incredibly violent and tragic, 20-year-old student Cameron Blair was killed at a house party in Cork. Um, in relation to, or in reaction to all of this, we've heard a lot of pretty meaningless, uh, in my opinion, posturing about law and order and Fine Gael's stance of being tough on crime. But the fact is, escalating and complex feuds between groups of people who are part of the illegal drug dealing industry in Ireland have uh, become a part of our social landscape that is very embedded and has indeed escalated on Fine Gael's watch. I want to bring you back to something the Social Democrats candidate for Dublin Central, Gary Gannon, said in 2016, which was, if a policing response is the only response to the current crisis, we will be back next year and the year after and the year after. And here we are, the year after that. Gannon is one of the few politicians you hear talking about what is broadly called gangland crime in the media in a way that moves beyond cliché. Two years ago this week, when Derek Hutch was murdered, uh, Gannon tweeted something, uh, or a, a thread that I'm just going to read part out uh, of because I think it's quite pertinent. Um, here's what Gary said. It is frightening what is happening on our streets. Violence has become normalised and we appear to be becoming desensitised to the systematic killing of young men in this state. This is so much more insidious than a feud between two factions, as is sometimes stated. It is about a multinational corporation whose product happened to be in illegal drugs, regulating their market through murder and using that sequence tragedy as a means to warn off competitors both present and future from emerging. It is about a state that is entirely naive to the increasing threat that awaits us. The rules change. The stakes have been raised the past couple of years. The violence and the murders used to, regu- used to regulate this market will only intensify. Um, if, that, if that sounds like a curiously perceptive uh, analysis of um, what is broadly described as the hutch Kinnahan feud, um, well, yeah, you'd be right. It kind of is. Um, Gary is a person who talks beyond uh, slogans on this. And so we are uh, in our kind of pursuit of emerging political voices. We're delighted uh, to have Gary in the studio. Welcome. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. Nice one. Gary, now, obviously, 
tackling extreme crime is multifaceted um, and there's obviously the need to pl- have a police response and uh, the public need to be safe yeah. and not live in fear but there's rarely a broader response to tackle the underlying issues beyond reacting to the crime itself. Uh, more cops on the street obviously doing their job um, but conversations about sentencing and the special criminal court and all that so how did you feel about the reactions from the two uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil politicians to the violent events that overshadowed the opening weeks of the campaign? They were just typical responses that you say. They're generic. They're the first thing that comes to the tip of your tongue. It doesn't go past the first kind of frontier of your brain. It's the easiest thing to say. We'll have a criminal response. We'll lock these people up. It's no different to Bill Clinton in 1994 and his three strikes and your out rhetoric. And all it ever leads to, and it's no different to what we've seen on our streets for since the 70s, since kind of heroin force punctuated the north inner city. Anytime this flares up, and what I mean flares up, I mean when people are killed violently as mm. opposed to quietly from the product that some of them are selling we get people talking about law and order responses and it's just nowhere near good enough mm. and actually in recent times following the killings that were involved in what was called the Hutchkin and Field and I will say that for the listeners but I don't believe it was yeah there's also a bit of hypocrisy and if you remember what was going on around that time, you had Enda Kenny and then going into the inner city as Taoiseach, treating the place like a zoo, bringing all the ministers in there, and they had this Mulvey report. If you remember, your listeners won't remember the Mulvey report. And what the Mulvey report recognised, and it was the first time we ever read, well, actually, it wasn't the first time, I'll talk about the other time. The Mulvey report recognised that there actually was a symmetry between crime and inequality, but only in a small little boundary of the inner city. And he said that you're going to go in there with an investment slush fund of five million mm. and invest in some of the schools, some of the projects and some of the policing but in a small little one mile area radius and for somebody like me who grew up and I don't I don't live in the inner city anymore I live just outside it but I grew up there and I was passionate about it um, I was trying to say to them look if we tackle this just in this small little radius here and you're accepting that inequality leads to crime which leads to violence here why can't we accept it on a national level because all that you were fighting over there was control of turf and all that we were saying was if they stop the violence in the inner city it's just going to spread out literally it's just going to spread out just all you're just doing if we stop the violence in the inner city it'll just spread out and they didn't stop the violence in the inner city I mean people you can still get drugs there's still people fighting there's still families being intimidated for drug related deaths they just stopped the loud violence that brings negative headlines but it was really hypocritical that he accepted in the inner city that there was a link between inequality but he don't accept it and draw a day he don't accept actually it's even worse than that because now we have TDs and councillors in those particular areas coming out rightfully saying can we have a Mulvey style initiative in Kulak and can we have one in Dundalk I said can we have one in the whole country can we have policies can we that actually like just accept change? it on a national yeah. stop this little kind of Q-horism of kind of there's a problem in my area so kind of almost like he raised or give me five million and I'll give it to the projects that I think are deserving of it can we actually just acknowledge that unless we confront this on a societal basis we're always going to have it and look that's not something that's unique to me I mean I don't think I'm the only one I mean the tyrant there is Tony Blair was talking about the idea of tough on crime tough on the causes of crime back in the, the 2000s so this is kind of a long established principle it's just a little bit more difficult I mean for me it's a threefold approach one absolutely of course we need more guardy on the street not even just to lock people up or arrest people or be in the face just to say hello and make people feel comfortable so we do need that but then we also need to accept the fact that where there is an 
inability to access opportunity. And by opportunity, I mean for young men in particular to have that sense of identity, the sense that they can provide for a family, have a position where they t- feel valued in society. They're going to go to the first obvious place where they can find it. They're going to sell drugs. They're going to buy the nice hat. They're going to stand around with their shoulders out saying, thinking that they're the toughest person in town. And because that's all motivated by fear, they're going to pick up knives and going to pick up guns because anything else is actually just terrifying. Mm. And then it's going after their market. And the market for many people is so around kind of working class communities around my community in the north inner city it wasn't necessarily cocaine although that certainly is there in abundance now but it was kind of like initially it was heroin it's not heroin anymore but they're benzodiazepines they're uppers they're downers they're blueies they're yellows or whatever people are talking about essentially they're buying what other people are getting off the doctor and they're medicating for the trauma and the trauma that comes with growing up in an area where actually things are a little bit difficult mm. family situations are often precarious dynamics are broken down even further now with the housing crisis inequality is entrenched further entrenched you're seeing things like the IFSC shooting up around you you're seeing young men or young people in general who are doing well but the opportunities aren't there to do it so you take up the quickest one to you but that How do we divert young men in particular from getting subsumed um, into drug related crime I know that is a very very complex um, question but it's something that seem to be lacking from the conversation last week so I hate keep going where I grew up in the university I hate that look I hate, I hate doing it but I do end up talking about it all the time when I was there because growing up for me I was just lucky like, so I went to a school in Marble Street School, Central Model School down just up Marble Street, and I was in school in the 90s. There was 22 people in my class, and we all seen people getting taken out of the flats and body bags. We all had family members that was, we'd lost or were engaged in drug addiction. So we'd all seen the effects of drugs. And, from the, and we'd all been told to just say no, drugs is the big red button. And even then, of those 22, I think there's about six who were involved, who have some form of drug addiction, and there's a couple who were involved in the more criminal aspects of it. And I just feel lucky because for me, I played for Sheriff YC. I had a football manager, Paul Ryan and Willow White, just two tough lads from around town who used to come up, pick me up, bring me to play football Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, tell me I was great, tell me I needed to cut myself on if I was slacking off. And actually of my football team who kind of had that sense of pride in what we were doing, none of, none of those lads are in any way involved in criminality. None of us are ever locked up. They're all just out there. Some of them have trades. Some of us are off trying to be politicians. <laughs> but like, what I did, we instilled a little bit of characters, a character in us. We instilled the pride in what it means to be part of a collective in the inner city, a sense that we are going out competing against other places but carrying the very badge of where we live with us. And that was kind of, for me, I think was really important the discipline that that gave me was the discipline I transferred in later on when I decided I want to go to college or when I'm kind of doing whatever I'm doing I'm standing in front of people talking sometimes I have to look back in and find that strength when I was kind of on that football pitch years ago and it wasn't particularly great but I did kind of feel valued there and that for me I just think it was essential like it was investing in those sort of programmes programmes that instill confidence belief and a sense of place that can come like for me it was football it could come in any hobby it could come in dance and drama whatever you want to do yourself whatever you're into let's get them going but opportunity then as well you know, I was um, I was let go from my trade when I was about 18, 19 but I just happened to be when my dad got me a trade as a plumber and I was let go but I just happened to be working on Griffith College when you're doing the canteen up and I was miserable there and I was looking out going where are all those people the same age as me drinking tea sitting around and chatting and not looking miserable and when I got let go I was like I wouldn't mind some of that and just got lucky again to be in an access programme so an access program in Trinity took me on so I just got lucky but along the way I got lucky with football managers coaches I was in it my family was still together I lived in a social housing unit where I had my own bedroom where I could play with my toys and be a daydreamer you know all that sort of stuff like I could 
I had that and I was fortunate and lots of people who I grew up in my area just didn't. So how we would deter young men from being involved in criminality and crime and all those sort of things has to be investments in confidence and instill values and a sense of belief in a place and a sense of actually, you know what, where you are, you're, you're respected and we believe in you because I had that and not everybody does. I was writing a piece um, in the in the Times this week about uh, Finnegal's what I perceive to be Finnegal's sense of detachment from society, and um, over the last four or five years, you know, we haven't really heard a lot of stuff from that kind of top level political class or whatever establishment about inequality and um, particularly inequality in Dublin and how that impacts people's options, life and paths. Eric. Yeah, and and, and, and yeah, and, yeah, like, 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 yeah, yeah, everywhere, absolutely. Every, absolutely. everywhere, independent towns and cities around the country. Um, what do you think? Uh, now, like, you can't blame Finnegale for something like um, the the dominance of the Kinnahan cartel. What you can say is that um, the feud that emerged from that, the murders that emerged from that, and the control of most of the drug market uh, has happened uh, in the lifetime of the government that has just um, been uh, dissolved, or whatever you want to want to say. Like, yeah. what do what do you think about the perspective of? Um, how society is organised or structured and why is that missing from Finnegal's rhetoric? Well actually I do think they're complicit in it. I do think Finnegal are complicit in the creating the conditions by which drugs can thrive in an area. When austerity was implemented in this country it was the community development sector that took the worst hits. It was so they reduced funding to community development sector by 37% which was significantly higher than any other sector and I mean that meant that the kind of mental health supports, the youth clubs, the, um, the child care facilities, the learning, the language supports, they all lost their capacity to deliver programmes. So and that creates the conditions then where actually if people are not in those they're thriving and uh, when they cut the doll payments from 170 or whatever down to 100 for, 120 for, for under 25 year olds all of a sudden those people who kind of had enough to live had to go out and find another way of engaging in kind of bringing up that money so it was only after all of that started to happen that you start to see there was always drugs gangs and there was always kind of the big and they used to have fancy names and everything like that the people that were involved in the drugs gangs you knew them or you knew that fella over there well, he, was, he was a drug dealer now, in the last 10 years, there's just the kids on the street. It's it's more, it's more far more entrenched than that. They're not making massive amounts of money, these kids. They're making probably two, three hundred max, I would say. Like, so they're only compensating. Well, they're not only compensating for the money that was taken away. But that money that was taken away actually meant that they couldn't afford to, I don't know, buy their lunch, whatever they were doing, mm. go out. And then all of a sudden you're finding other ways of making their money. And it became a lot more... Um, entrenched across that kind of people he had never would have seen involved in drugs were now involved at a very petty level so yeah I do think they're complicit in it but this idea of kind of I don't like I I don't think just because somebody disagrees with me in politics that they're automatically a bad person but Fine Gael do have an, ide- an ideology that's about individualism they don't necessarily believe in the idea of collectivism you can see that when they're constantly talking about reducing people's taxes as a way of saying look if you can probably afford your healthcare you can afford your childcare so you shouldn't buy into that collective and for, a th- for somebody like Fine Gael to acknowledge inequality is to acknowledge that their ideology has failed mm. it's to acknowledge that they've created a society where some are absolutely doing well Others are struggling and others are absolutely living below the deprivation line and the consequences that come from that is that people don't buy into the system. And when you don't buy into the system, doing bad kind of becomes your way of doing good. 
and that's kind of actually that's a quote I stole from Frankenstein <laughs> it was, it was, but I do it's um, when all good to me be lost evil becomes my way of doing good and for a lot of people that don't have a place in society this is just how they're this is just how they're acting now. But do you think even Fine Gael connect the dots that the fact that their policies are actually having this effect, that the more poverty there is, the more cuts to these inner city places, that that's where, why crime is rising. It, it feels like they don't that, even realise as the rich get richer, the poor are getting poorer, the crime is going up. That's what really annoyed me about that. And I know, that's what really annoyed me about that Mulvey Report initiative. I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with it, but it was this initiative that came out after the kind of the Hutchkinham feud. Enda Kenny, Kieran Mulvey, who's a decent guy, they brought all of their ministers one day into the inner city. But you know, I mean, my mum works in the Crescent Charter Street. She's seen Enda Kenny six times in the last year. They're on force nine bases. And they came in with this idea that we're going to solve this problem now. And I just couldn't accept the hypocrisy of saying you recognise it happens here, but you don't think it's factored into the fact that it happens everywhere else. And all they're fighting over here is the market that other people are basically funding. Mm. And if you move it from here, you're just going to move it somewhere else. It happened before, you know, after the after the death of Veronica Gerd, after the murder of Veronica Gerd in, in the 1990s. Um, same thing, I think it was Bertie came into the inner city and they started building up the drugs task forces, the community policing initiatives, um, all of these kind of social events. The fourth tier of social partnership effectively happened after that, which was again an acknowledgement of the link between inequality and crime. But as soon as any sort of dark economic clouds gather, they're the first to go and then everything else falls back around it. While we have you, Gary, um, there's no doubt that there's an awful lot of um, respect for you on the ground in your constituency, that you have been there um, doing an awful lot of work, um, talking sense in the council, for example. Um, But one thing that, you know, kind of a lightning rod thing that comes up for people is on a completely unrelated (laughs) issue is the issue of the whitewater rafting um, centre, um, which... uh, may be the bane <laughs> of your life at this stage um, can you explain why you voted for that yeah um, I can look at in terms of so first I'll get to the actual reason why I voted for it I was planning on showing up at that meeting and voting against it but there was a quite significant intervention from the Dublin Fire Brigade who was saying that that particular initiative down there would help them in terms of their life-saving tra- training they were saying that they previously been and it was the first time I'd ever seen the, the Chief Executive of the Dublin Fire Brigade come in and say will you vote for this they said to us that previously they had been doing their training on the Liffey and that the toxicity levels in the water went that they couldn't do it there then they were going up to Glendalock but when you're doing it in spate rivers if there was too much water in it you were actually having to rescue their own personnel and if there was too little in it you were having to turn around and go home and they needed these certs in order to perform water based rescues they take 44 people out of water a year and I think it's, that's comparative to like 80 out of houses and I was just thinking to myself sitting there going oh Jesus if I've been told since the moment I got involved in politics that I have to be led by evidence best practice and listen to professionals all I have as a city councillor is to say yes or no. I don't get to decide can money be redirected. I don't get to decide where else it can go. They told me that this particular money was twenty-two million, a horrific amount. Twelve amount was from sports and tourism. Twelve, some of it was from sports and tourism grants. Twelve million from sports and tourism grants. Others from grants that were only available to the emergency personnel and 5 million in development levies and 4 million that was going to be borrowed that will be recouped over two years but in fact we're going to charge all the English dag parties 50 quid and then all the local clubs down the north inner city and around the area would be able to use the place for free so they get was the logic and I only had to say yes or no and I'm like if there was a doctor sitting here telling me that well they're doing the training their health was being impacted would I say no and I was just I, I, yeah, I said yes and I actually don't regret the decision Okay, we'll accept that as as as, um, 
as your as your reasoning. Um, finally, just like what's it looking like on the ground for you right now? The constituency has increased to a four seater again, uh, which is good for you. Yes. But the boundaries have changed slightly since 2016, taking in kind of a fringe bit of Glasnevin, fringe bit of Drumcondra, which is good for Fianna Fáil. You lost out very narrowly to Maureen O'Sullivan in 2016. Um, I don't need to remind you of that. Uh, she no, not bitter, not bitter. <laughs> <laughs> She's not standing this time around. Good for you. Um, so that that so-called kind of Gregory candidate vote is a little bit up in the air. Maybe some of it will go to Joe Costello, maybe to Christy yeah. Burke, um, maybe to Fianna Fáil, maybe to you. There's a new green in the constituency, um, oh, a new green running for, for the doll in the constituency, Nasa Hurrigan, who will probably do well. Um, so it looks like Mary Lou will top the poll. Pascal Donoghue will probably keep his seat. Then in the mix for the last two, it's probably be yourself, Nasa the Greens, Mary Fitzpatrick of Fianna Fáil, who got nearly 20% first preference votes uh, mm. in the locals topping the poll in the first count. A lot of that is coming from her Glasnevin base, right? So the constituency boundary change is going to work for her. How are things going for you and how do you feel about it? Because it looks like it's going to be another dogfight for those seats. It's absolutely going to be a dogfight. Um, this is what we do. Things shouldn't be easy. So we're just knocking at doors telling people about our vision or talking about social democracy. Look, I've built up my reputation over the last six years by working hard, by trying to take positions that are difficult, not giving in to sound bites. And look, elections come and go. If I don't win this one, we'll do it again. But on the doors, it's going really well. This is my fourth what election. What is your vision? For social... So place where you pay your taxes and you get your services. They're very simple. Looking at kind of best practice that works in other countries, like say in the Nordic countries, where you pay your taxes, you get childcare, you get universal healthcare. These are just simple things that happen elsewhere that I don't think, I think we can have here. But it's just small cultural changes. We're talking to people that actually believe in collectivism. That's my vision for society. It's very simple. Um, in terms of the constituency, this is my first election knocking at doors where generally people know me. In the last mm. election, people hadn't got a clue how I was. I was winning doors. I was winning votes one door at a time. This one, people know me, so they're either going to vote for me or not. It's been very, very positive at doors. It is going to be a bit toss up between myself and the Greens. But you know what? She's a really great candidate too. So I mean, say la vie. It's it's going good. Okay, Gary, listen, you're a gent and we really appreciate you coming in here and, and talking to us. Oh, um, also. Go on. Oh. 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 Might there be some news about the Magdalene? Oh. Oh, yeah. So, what? sorry, um, one of your main kind of uh, pieces of work in, in the council and in the constituency of the last few years is your really stellar work on um, campaigning for the uh, ex-Magdalene Laundry to be memorialised in a way and not sold as a hotel. Can you give us an update on that? I can give you an exclusive. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Just today, Dublin City Council are going to update local councillors that they are committed to building a centre of education down on the Magdalene Laundry site. So they're going to put out to universities around that they'd like to build a, some form of a university there that also has an early learning initiative interventions. So we don't know who that is. We do know who they've been talking to though, but I can't really talk about that mm. they also want to have a very they're also going to have a very substantial memorial to survivors of institutional abuse that is going to be decided and built in consultation with the survivors and also with the local communities there's this really group of people called really group great people this really great group of people called the Open Heart Collective consisting of academics from UCD such as Catherine O'Donnell Maeve O'Rourke they've been working with the architecture department in Queen's University UCD their students are actually going to base themselves out of the laundry and talk to the community about what and the community by the community I mean the survivor community and the local community about what the development of the memorial would look like it'll be the first time in the history to state that anything is built in consultation with the community and then there's also going to be housing on the site for old people 
So I've been using the phrase for a long time of a sight of conscience and this is exactly what I've meant and Dublin City Council now accept that this is the approach they're briefing councillors today and it's going to be a very substantial victory for the survivors. And I think, I want to say we, I mean the state made a promise to those survivors many times regarding the memorial and I think we have to be sure that they're going to honour it and this suggests that they are. Fair play. I mean, that's that's very, very commendable. And I just want to thank you for coming in and um, wish you the best of luck. Um, it's going to be a toughie, but, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that you say uh, makes a lot of sense. And I think that people will, will respond to it. So um, enjoy the rest of the campaign <laughs> oh, Jesus. as much as you can. And um, we'll talk to you. We'll talk to you after February 8th. How about that? Yeah, definitely. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Across all of our election special podcasts, we're going to be bringing you uh, the voice of the voters. That's you. So in our first voters voice, uh, we talk to a single male city renter professional. Um, this is Ben Fraser. And what we want to do is basically take these archetypes, these demographics that we hear about an awful lot and actually personalise them and maybe challenge um, the ideas that the people have around them. So this is our first voters voice, Ben Fraser. My name is Ben Fraser. Uh, I'm 27. I work as a digital strategist in a creative agency in the centre of Dublin. Um, I'm originally from Clontarf, um, so I used to vote in Dublin by North. That was my constituency, I used to go home to vote. Um, not as far as other people went home to vote, but uh, that was originally my constituency. And then for repeal, I moved my vote to the to Dublin South Central, so now I'm I'm voting there. How do you think you are seen demographically as a voter archetype? You seem to tick a lot of boxes. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't really know in the sense that I think I, I do tick a, a several different boxes. Um, I'm originally posh, so uh, I went to a, a private school in Dublin, so I kind of, I guess, would be naturally in a more, you know, centre, left or centre, right space in terms of the parents of the people that I went to school with and my own parents would have been centre left, um, but would have, say, voted for the Progressive Democrats or, or someone like that at, at certain points and then voted for Labour. So we kind of sit between those two different things. But, you know, my my kind of adult life has been sent on the left wing of politics. So I guess I'm more of the, you know, young progressive um, professional class now, I suppose, would be would be where I am now. So I think people would assume probably correctly that I vote, you know, left wing, but not very left wing. So I tend to kind of, I'd say people would assume I'm I'm a Green voter or a Social Democrat voter or say a Labour voter from 2011. Um, so that I think that's probably the assumption people would make in terms of political parties. But in Ireland, it's very difficult to define yourself. I think um, just because the like the parties are much more idiosyncratic than they are ideological, and obviously parties like Labour have a history in government that impacts how you view their ideology. So on paper, you might be a Labour voter, but by kind of constitution, you're not. Um, likewise with the Greens, they have their own problems, um, you know, propping up a Fine Fáil government, Labour with Fine Gael, you know. So we've been, um, it's been, it's been difficult, I'd say, for, for people who are 
say the same views as as I have um, to find a political home that feels, you know, like the morally right choice, but also, you know, we all I think at the level that that I'd be engaged with politics, you do try to be tactical and think, okay, what outcomes are actually going to happen there, uh, given my vote, and that can be difficult because you know, you vote for a Green or a Labour or a Social Democrats. Do I get Leo Varadkar as Taoiseach? You know, because I'm not going to get Eamon Ryan. I'm not going to get Catherine Murphy. So um, that all impacts it, I think. Mm. So what issues are you voting on then? The big issues for me, obviously, the first is climate change. Um, You know, like every second news story now is about the climate breakdown. Um, And that's a huge issue, but... I think that's kind of uh, almost a gating issue. Like you assume the political party that you are voting for now, or I do, and the people that I know do, are on the right side of the climate change debate. You know, most people that I know don't think of it as a debate anymore. It's more like, how has nothing been done? So it's almost like that. That's a that's the starter issue. But beyond that, um, like I like I would think of it more in in kind of. Uh, you know more far-reaching terms in terms of you know okay we we all agree that climate change is happening but how are we going to ensure social justice and economic justice in the transition and you know and that hits housing and homelessness and taxation and how money is spent and how decisions are made Um, so obviously housing is a a massive issue for me Um, not just because I'm a renter in Dublin but you know, across the board, I think housing is having an effect that I don't think we've even really been able to unpack because it's just, there's a daily story about, you know, someone dying in a tent or, you know, the most recent one, that that horrific story about a man being, you know, horrifically injured. You know, there's a story, not maybe like that, but, but a similar story about how horrible the housing situation in Ireland is. But I think that kind of clouds it a little bit in that, there's housing crises there's more than one and you know the impact that like colossal rents are having on almost everybody in the country I don't think is really being covered because there's such acute issues for some people but that that more macro problem is is colossal and I think it's having a huge effect on my generation especially but also their parents and you know basically everybody so that that's I think housing and housing as a proxy for how parties view their constituents and how they view the direction Ireland is going in. So, you know, nightlife in Dublin is 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 also a problem of space and housing and the arts is also a problem in, you know, how people view young people and the value of the things we care about. Um, you know, all of those things kind of intersect at a at an economic justice level. So when we look at the housing issue and you're talking about the rental issue in particular, and you're right that, you know, housing is the housing crisis is multifaceted and the rental crisis is one part of that. How does that impact your real life? I mean, I think I'm just personally in a relatively lucky position in the sense that I moved into my house uh, that I'm in now um, in the Liberties about seven years ago. My sister had been there for a couple of years before so we started at a relatively low um, rent level now it was actually quite expensive at the time but by today's standards obviously it's gone up 
a lot um, and by any other country's standards it would be kind of extortionate levels that it's gone up by but actually by today's standards in Ireland I'm relatively lucky in that you know my rent isn't 50-60% of my salary thank God Um, but at the kind of more macro level I was saying you know I have friends leaving the city because they can't live here I have you know people who I work for having to move home to save to buy a house you know so I look at my career in five years and I think okay if I got you know if I moved two or three rungs up I'd still have to move home to buy a house so those macro macro impacts are are, are huge in the sense that I think there's just a, a like a sense across the board that there's a huge amount of people that I know friends of mine that have realized that no matter how good they are at their job no matter how far they go a lot of them maybe won't be able to be secure in in where they're living because rents just keep going up there's really no sign of them stopping and buying a house is just completely unattainable for so many people so like i think that piece of it is is huge and then there's the stories about you know just the horror of old people living in hostels and you know families living in cars and that has a huge impact i think on just the degree to which i think people in this country feel like the authorities and the people in charge and it's not just the government it's also local government are listening and and care about the people that live in their cities and in their towns and in rural ireland as well like it you know it goes across the board and i don't think we've really made a good account of what that impact is yet mm. Um, do you mind me asking you finally who you're probably going to vote for with um, bearing all those things in mind that those are the things you're thinking about when you're going to to vote? Sure. So on one level, I think electing just decent people who seem to actually care is is, is something that that is really important and that, and that sometimes cuts across parties. But we were just talking there and I, I don't even know the name of the Green candidate in my constituency, but I'll, I'll be voting Green. Um so there, there, there's a bit of both because obviously there's there's decisions to be made by any of the left-wing parties about who they go into government government with or don't um but so so like the 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 decency and the kind of you know good decision making of each individual person is really important but for me the climate issue is so huge and there's such a dearth of decent options on the left wing in ireland that i think the greens are best positioned to either in or out of government because obviously with the way government is structured now with minority governments going to be the norm for at least this cycle and maybe a good few to come being out of government gives you a lot of power as well the government gets defeated a lot on votes that were you know 10 years ago it never did so the way I see it, electing Greens um, and people like them, you know, the Social Democrats obviously as well, um, certain people in Labour, um, having people like that who, who genuinely do care and are, are decent people, um, making those decisions and making votes that I agree with, whether they're in or, in or out of government, um, you know, that that's kind of the most important thing. And obviously leadership on climate even just symbolically having a big green vote sends a message like it did in the Europeans and the locals. So if we end up with 12 green seats, it makes Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil think, 
how do we get those voters? And I think there's value in that by itself. So yeah, that that's where I'll be sending my vote this time. It's time for us to decide who is getting into the sea in this week's campaign. And how could we not put this into the sea? Oh my God, it is the most in bits uh, campaigning I've ever seen in my, well, not ever, but in Ireland. Um, the other day, Fine Gael put out on their Twitter a video of that they'd recreated to Benny Hill Music of staffers running around with Fianna Fáil cut out faces of Willie O'Dea, Micheál Martin, etc. looking for policies that apparently they hadn't uh, shown. Um, it was put up on Twitter. It was then deleted overnight. So uh, there was an uproar on uh, Twitter of people just being like, absolutely scarlet for your lives. This is absolutely outrageous. The seriousness of what has been going on this week and you're releasing Benny Hill uh, campaign Rhetoric is absolutely in bits. So it was deleted. Um, but however, when questioned, Leo Varadkar stood over it and he said, we still stand over the ethos of the message it, that Fianna Fáil have no policies. Um, it was just done in a funny way. Um, and I think the fact that we're getting down to nasty type of campaigning of like this stupid childish ha 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 they have nothing but look at us is uh, indicative of where Fine Gael are coming from and I think it was just it just actually made my skin crawl to be honest it Mm. wasn't even like funny or like this is in bits it was actually just this is absolutely disgusting and if you're bending to this type of campaigning at this stage already and if this is the way uh, we're going to be going that's a sad state of affairs and I think it's really uh, heartwarming that the electorate did respond the way they did and it was deleted and that so many people were like this is not the type of campaigning we want in our election and I think that was that was a good thing um, but I think it was also very like the optics of it at the timing was very bizarre but also it was it was also um, the ca- uh, the homeless man and the tent uh, having been scooped co- that that day I think it was um, and it was the same day that Leah Radker was in a forklift and I just think the optics of where they're going are just very questionable mm. I think the that um, anti finifall video was like wrong on so many different levels even if you take out the fact as you're talking about how it was juvenile and all that kind of stuff but it's it's interesting because even with somebody with a passing um, understanding or experience in, let's say, digital campaigning and with regards to making video content and wanting things to go viral, mm. we know, like it's very obvious if you under, have a you know basic understanding of this stuff that it's not actually negative um, video stuff that goes viral. Mm. It's always stuff that is very like emotionally touching, that is inspirational, that is heartwarming, that shares a personal message. Those are the type of video contents in general election campaign mm. contacts in Ireland that uh, tend to go viral and that people to respo- respond to. This kind of thing may have been like funny for a minute in a young Fine Gael WhatsApp group but to actually think that you can share this kind of stuff with the public mm. um, is really, really stupid. Um, so I'd really kind of question what kind of strategy and what kind of... Uh, understanding do these these, um, folks have making this stuff for Fine Gael and also 
it feels like it's a game. It, that video yeah. made the campaign feel like a game and that people's lives are being played with for them to get into power. And I think that is the crux of the issue for me. Yeah. And though I was looking at the Fine Gael Twitter account on the official Fine Gael Twitter account on Sunday and there were 13 tweets in a row all attacking Fianna Fáil. Um, so maybe talk about something that good that you're going to do instead of slagging other people. So that needs to get in the sea. Fave bits this week um, in non-campaign news, thankfully. Uh, Maybe we should pick our fave bits of the campaign for next week. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, Okay. we'll do that. But um, in the meantime... (laughs) For now, it's all about us. For now, it's all about us. My fave bits, I'm happy that Pillow Queens are going to South by Southwest. They are a great representation of Irish music right now. I love South by Southwest. And I love Pillow Queens. Um, My... Film of the week that I saw on Sunday night is a film called Waves. It's a bit overly stylized, but I really enjoyed it, and it is an interesting structure in that it kind of changes. What's it about? It's about a kind of middle class family in America where shit goes down with their kids and how they cope with it. Um, the director used to work on, used to crew on some Ter- Terrence Malick films, so there's a lot of those kind of directorial choices in it. Um, the directing is really like super highly stylized and there's lots of kind of almost Instagram type influences in the colour palette and stuff like that but it's um, well worth the watch it's quite depressing (laughs) as you know that is my favourite type (laughs) of movie genre does it depress me? then bring it on Um, complete opposite to me (laughs) does this entertain me and make me feel good? But that's why we're such a great combo. <laughs> um, and then a podcast that I started listening to is called um, Have You Heard George's Podcast? That is the title of it. It's a BBC podcast um, by George the Poet. And it kind of presents... It's been up for so many awards. It's really fantastic. I only started to listen to it um, this week. I started with um, an, the Grenfell episode, part one. And they're kind of like radio dramas like fictionalised narratives in rhyme and uh, just really really well produced great sound design so check that out after you listen to us and all of our bonus podcasts and also can I just put in these are not my fave bits but also I'm loving Victorian Davina's uh, podcast I have not heard it oh it's it's like it's gas it's called Petty Little Things and also Mark Megan's Sunday Roast. They're my two podcasts of the moment. Cool. And what about, an your, what about your other fave bits? My other fave bits are in a week where pig number one uh, was heralded as our sporting saviour, um, Conor McGregor fighting, I was taking another uh, route down a lane of snooker. The final of the Masters was on. You love snooker. I love it. But I feel like in comparison to fighting and all the high octane energy of that snooker is like a meditation because it goes on for so long it's all very quiet but it's all in it's all mind related so it's not just the action of potting the balls it's the cue ball and where it's going to go and the mind games that are involved in trying to snooker your opponent so I feel like it's a lovely sport for a meditative watch that's very calming and I feel like Yoga and snooker are the calming influences we need in the world that's gone mad. Hmm. 
Also on my fave bits is clubbing at the next No More Hotels is on the 15th of February, which I'm very excited about. And we're in the middle of announcing all of our fab acts. Um, and actually, we have an MMA fighter uh, lined up, Cahill Pendred, who was the Walter Waite. He's going to be one of the DJs. So there's loads to be looking at on that. Very interesting. Some politicians, some buzzers, some clubbers. We are also announcing uh, another club night, inclusive, exclusive. The guy who runs that, Billy Banzari, is going to be playing. Uh, the n- same night, Sanctuary's on. Sis is on at Mother this weekend. There's just so many brilliant, creative clubs who are working within the structures of our of what we have in the country, I suppose, and trying to make the best of it. So I big up to all the clubs doing their fab bits. And then my other fave bit is... Nikki Lannan has an augmented reality game that she's developed on Set William Street, her headquarters are called Wardux. And the other day, Tim Cook, who is the CEO of Apple, popped in and then popped out a little tweet of support saying how great it was. And you love to see it uh, in the neighbourhood. You know yourself, Apple <laughs> CEO, giving the props to the local uh Peeps, so big up to Nikki Lannan and the fab work she's doing, and obviously in a male uh, centric um, industry. Industry, it's great to see women coming through. Yeah, go and on. That's amazing. And finally, the uh, in the Dublin International Film Festival is launched. It's not called that, sure, it's not. It is, yeah. Oh yeah, fab. That's launching tonight, and I am one of the judges on the ICCL's uh, panel for their films with a human rights-based uh, approach, and that will they'll be giving awards to that. So with Alva Smith and Brenda Courtney and others, so brilliant. amazing. Go you! Woo! This podcast is produced by Andrew Mang at Castaway Media with support from Susie Bennett. Uh, Chris O'Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all our design. You can find links to all of our socials on our website, unitedirelandpodcast.com. Oh my God, Andrea, <laughs> we fucking forgot to do the Patreon shout out again. We are putting in super extra bonus effort into the next month of podcasting. Um, Therefore, we actually like we needed your support before. We really need it this time. If you can throw us a few quid on patreon.com forward slash United Ireland, we would really, really appreciate it. It keeps us going. Please. And also, we do want to maybe up our uh, number of podcasts, which we need to pay for for production. Yeah. Hi, Andrew. Uh, So we'd like to be able to pay Andrew. So if you could come on board uh, to help us do that, that would be stunning. Yes. And stay tuned for uh, more bonus podcasts this week, including our take on Sinn Féin's poll success. If you have any suggestions for subjects you'd like us to look at for an episode, just drop us a mail or tweet us or DM us on Instagram. Andrea, what is this week's tuna chicken roll? This week's tuna chicken roll, it's such a funny one uh, because it's kind of a mainstream song at this stage. But every time it comes on, I'm like, oh my God, I absolutely love the song. What is it? And I Shazam it every single time. And I've Shazam, if I go to my Shazam, I've Shazammed it about 20 times. It's just so good. and gets under your skin and I absolutely adore it. Um, even though I can never remember it. It's Peggy Goo, Starry Night. I've been Una Malali. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was Election Special Part 2. Crime, Crime and, and Punishment.
us. 